You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Once again, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, we're talking to Dr. James Tracy of the Memory Hole blog at MemoryHoleBlog.com. Once again, an interesting source of essays and uh, and opinions on all sorts of topics that are uh, extremely well researched. And I have found myself relying on some of these uh, some of these blog posts before for my own work. So I suggest you go and take a look at it for yourself if you haven't yet done so. Once again, memoryholeblog.com. So, Doctor Tracy, let's start talking a little bit about the um, well. I guess the academy, generally speaking how it functions as an institution within our society and how it uh, malfunctions within our society as well. As you were pointing out before the break, it's it's interesting that there are professors and, and people in the academy who have this position of tenure from which they're ostensibly free to exercise academic freedom and to to really start to explore some of those controversial subjects in our society that uh, that a lot of other institutions just generally won't touch because of the uh, the ever present sort of Damocles hanging over so many people's heads that their positions might be in trouble if they speak out on certain issues well for tenured professors of course that is not a concern so one would expect the most cutting edge and the most vociferous criticism of the status quo to be coming from the academy and yet that's often not what we see. So from your perspective as an associate professor and as someone in the system, tell us what you see in terms of how the academy actually functions as a tool of social critique. Well, um, first of all, I want to be careful not to paint with too broad of a brush because um, professors, for example, in, say, physics or uh, engineering, uh, might not be suited or inclined to comment on uh, political concerns uh, and, and the like. Uh, professors, for example, in English who are teaching medieval literature, of, of who I know, in fact, one here on campus, met, mentioned to me, I'd love to teach your classes because it sounds so interesting. I think that I'm uh, well-situated uh, teaching classes on, uh, on journalism and, uh, and the news media and the like, which you cannot teach without touching on the political. I'm, I'm fairly well positioned and fortunate to be able to um, to contribute uh, in that regard, uh, and I think that many other individuals in the academy are as well. For example, historians and uh, political scientists uh, uh, and the like. Uh, but um, that's uh, that's not as much the case as one would expect. Also, sociologists, um, and there are a number of facets to this that we could break down. Uh, um, part of it is disciplinary. Uh, there are certain sorts of strictures uh, um, with regard to uh, historians and uh, and political scientists uh, within the discipline itself, and I think uh, parameters that they're fairly aware of. I think that's less the case in uh, sociology and media studies, communication, uh, journalism studies, what have you, uh, because we are regarded as being sort of the red-headed stepchildren of the academy, if you will. Uh, we are younger disciplines. Uh, communication is really, uh, in, in some ways, kind of a, 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 a it, it's a number of, uh, of, of sub-disciplines, including rhetoric and, and media studies, journalism, uh, and uh, intercultural communication and so forth. Uh, but given that, there are also um, greater possibilities for uh, engaging in, in, in public discussion. 
uh, without uh, again without these sorts of uh, sorts of strict parameters. Uh, and within uh, my uh, my peer circle, uh, even given those those sorts of uh, prerequisites. Uh, many will not really address or uh, touch upon things such as, well, the things I've been uh, touching upon and, and trying to address on my blog, such as, uh, you know, uh, the uh, dangers of uh, RF uh, uh, radiation, um, the geoengineering or chemtrails, uh, things such as uh, 9-11, which is, uh, I think, indisputably the most important uh uh, a political, uh, geopolitical event uh, of the past uh, 50 years, perhaps the past uh, past century. Uh, and uh, these things are, are taboo. I can't really definitively say it's specifically this or it's specifically that. I it, It's more subtle. Um, there's a wonderful essay that uh, the sociologist Warren Breed uh, wrote in 1955 called Social Control in the Newsroom. And he was a former journalist. And he talked about how journalists in, in commercial, you know, newspapers were conditioned to, um, to produce the news without overt types of censorship. And, uh, it's a really interesting, uh, piece to look at because I think much of it holds true for the academy, for those of us who have the potential, really, uh, and the capacities and so forth to address important concerns such as 9-11. They don't, in, in part because of, uh, uh, what their, the vision of their expectation as a scholar is, uh, how, uh, they believe they will be perceived by their peers. Uh, what is expected of them to get, uh, to become tenured and promoted. Um, when one brings up something such as, uh, such as 9-11, uh, or, uh, something like, uh, geoengineering, uh, it is, it, it comes with a lot of baggage. One of those, one of the greatest, um, pieces of baggage, if you will, uh, is the term conspiracy or conspiracy theorist. This term has a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of rhetorical and emotional effect uh, in professional realms, in uh, journalism as well as, I think, in academe, because it calls into question one's judgment, uh, one's sense of rationality. Are they? Can they be trusted if they believe in these conspiracy theories? And I think that this term uh, has been used to such a degree of something that in many ways... Uh, uh, stifles uh, serious and important discussion, and it does so in the in the academy as much so as is in the broader sort of uh, uh, public uh, public discourse in the public sphere. Um, so that's you know that that's uh, that's one um, I guess interpretation. Uh, there are a number of other things that uh, that Breed discusses in that uh, in that particular essay. Uh, whereby the publisher of the newspaper really doesn't exert overt control, uh, but rather does this more subtly. But again, things such as uh, peer pressure, I mean, for lack of a better term, uh, the expectations, professional expectations and so forth. Uh, and um, uh, there are other things as well in, um, you know, I mean, political correctness. 
Uh, and that's a, uh, that's another term that carries perhaps almost as much baggage as conspiracy theory. Uh, but, um, there really is a, uh, a sensitivity, I think, uh, to that. Uh, and by my saying that, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, harbor, uh, you know, one type of belief or another towards, uh, towards a, a, a minority or, uh, gender or anything of the like. Uh, that's, that's not why I bring it up. I, I just think that it is, it is a reality. Uh, and there, there are no two ways really, uh, really about that. Absolutely. And that's a good point because I think that when we look at the types of controls that may be exerted societally on people in, in academia and journalism and other professions besides, they're not, they're certainly not always overt and they often take the forms of, of various types of self-censorship. And I think that applies to political correctness as much as to, um, to terms like conspiracy theory and other, other types of, uh, covert control that I think is wielded through society itself. And, and you raise some very good points there, including the fact that, of course, academic specialization means that someone in physics, for example, won't necessarily have any greater vantage for, from which to comment on uh, torture in Iraq or something of, of that nature. But uh, also, I mean, you do bring up some, some of the other issues that, that you talk about on your blog, for example, RF radiation or even the, uh, the physical events of 9-11 that physicists would be in a position to at least have something to say about, given their <laughs> academic specialization. So I think there's a lot of different ways different academics could contribute to the conversation, but perhaps the uh, the the, uh, the 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 biggest um, uh, example of of a socially active uh, uh, academic in our recent times has been Noam Chomsky, who of course his linguistic work, his academic work, is only at best tangentially related, I would say, to his uh, social uh, activism. So perhaps that's the uh, the model that a lot of people look to when they think of an academic who's involved in social social movements yeah i would uh, i would tend to agree and uh as far as 9-11 goes uh he has provided really a uh, a disservice for uh seeking the truth about uh, about that event i think uh, uh his uh, remarks are generally along the lines of someone uh something you would hear from the state department or the uh, or the Bush administration uh, at the time. I mean, you can actually uh, compare the two. There's little difference uh, between between the two, and that's um, nothing new from Chomsky. Uh, he's uh, someone that has sought to downplay the significance of the uh, assassination of uh, President uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, he is someone uh, who, in his 1988 book, I think it's very interesting in manufacturing consent, which I think a, a lot of uh, uh, critical scholars of the media, media studies, what have you, uh, and sociologists look to as being an important work. Its, it's subtitle is the political economy of the mass media. Well, it's not really. It's more. It's uh, they they have this propaganda model. You're probably familiar with it, and there are these specific filters uh, and the like. Um, but uh, that came out at a, at, a, at a key point in the late 1980s, uh, and I think it, and, and it, it's it's. Um, it, it is preceded by the Political Economy of Human Rights, a two-volume work by uh, he and uh, Ed Herman, who was a professor of uh, economics uh, at the Wharton School at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. In the late 70s, just shortly after the Church Committee hearings, when there was a great deal of controversy 
uh, following uh, uh, Bernstein's work about the CIA's involvement in the uh, in the media. So that work, in many ways, I think, really tended to shift attention away from the tremendous effect that the intelligence community had had, has had, and presently, I believe, I would contend, has. Absolutely. All right, let's let's hold it there. We're coming up against another break. We'll take a short breather, and we'll be back talking more with Dr. James Tracy right after this. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com slash support. All right, friends, we're back once again talking to James Tracy of MemoryHoleBlog.com. And tonight we're talking about academia, academics, and their role in society as potential, well, and sometimes often great speakers of truth um, when it comes to certain issues. And certainly when it comes to people like Chomsky, who we were talking about just before the break, I uh, certainly do think he's done some incredibly important work over the years, uh, raising awareness on a number of issues. But Certain key issues seem to be either neglected or actively deflected, including, of course, the JFK assassination, which Chomsky has been a, uh, well, a, quite a, a, a proponent of the official story, shall we say, for a very long time, and 9-11 Truth, where he has also turned his back on any investigation that would go against the official narrative, which is interesting. And in fact, of course, one of his famous comments when confronted about 9-11 was, uh, well, even if it was an inside job, who cares? He literally <laughs> said that, which is just such a bizarre statement to make that it beggars imagination, especially when he was just finished saying that if if that had been done and if the truth came out, it would basically consign the Republican Party to the dustbin of history if it was found to be related to George Bush. So obviously people care. Uh, again, the mental backflips that have to be done to avoid inquiring too deeply into certain areas, of course, raises suspicions. And of course, there are the people out there who speculate about Noam Chomsky's own ties to the intelligence agencies and things like like that. Of course, I don't speculate about that because I don't really have access to that information, but I do find it interesting when certain academics will go out of their way to avoid certain inquiries. And, uh, uh, of course, this can also lead to a sort of institutional analysis of organizations like MIT, which, of course, employs Mr. Chomsky and, of course, is also deeply related to the American military intelligence establishment and being somewhat seen as an adjunct of that for all the research that goes on there that's related to the Department of Defense. So uh, there are certain ways in which I guess we can see that academia links directly into that edifice of of the uh, status quo that uh, that academics would ostensibly be going against. Right, Dr. Tracy? Oh, uh, certainly. And uh, one of the uh, big factors in that regard uh, is the uh, foundation support for research, which uh, is uh, increasingly relied upon uh, as uh, state funding for um, for the institutions of higher education uh, decrease. Uh, And um, it's something that I'm more distanced from being in a college of arts and letters, uh, but uh, certainly in the hard sciences, there's uh, very um, uh, significant competition for grants and things of the like. And there is no real concern whether or not that grant comes from the likes of uh, Lockheed Martin or uh, the uh, Department of Defense. I mean, uh, they're the, 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 um, 
morals and ethics and what have you of accepting a grant uh, to produce a certain type of killing technology generally goes right out the window. And I, I'm not speaking specifically with regard to my own institution. Uh, I'm, I'm talking uh, in, a, in a general sense about, uh, about academe. Absolutely. Well, it does raise worrying questions because, of course, it's always the question of who is funding this research. And obviously, when one is funding research, one expects something out of it. So the Department of Defense is not just some some uh, uh, passive observer in the background to all of this. Of course, they do have a finger in the pie of a lot of these research projects that go on in the hard sciences, as you say. But uh, it extends, I think, even into things like media studies, etc. I know, for example, you've written about uh, the, the Rockefeller Foundation and, and its various uh, educational and research grants and, and things that it's provided in the past. And I, I know you've also written about the incident, the, uh, the, the War of the Worlds incident. I believe you wrote about that, where uh, uh, that was actually later commissioned as part of a, a, a research study into the way that media can affect mass panic, etc., that was partially funded by the Rockefellers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, back in the 1930s, I think those were the more uh, formative years for this. Uh, but between the, uh, the mid-1940s, the end of World War II, and the early 1960s uh, during the Cold War period, uh, a great deal of uh, funding from uh, from the government as well as from foundations went to uh, uh, to fund psychological uh, warfare uh, research, and this is in part what uh, really formed the basis for uh, mass communication and, uh, and and journalism studies and, and media and the like. Uh, yeah, a lot of the funding did come from um, uh, from uh, defense interests if you will, uh, war-creating interests, uh, as, well as, from, uh, as well as from foundations. Yeah. Well, of course, that raises uh, the, the prospect of, of a more overt type of control. Obviously, funding is provided for a reason and expects certain results. Uh, what do you think is the awareness uh, in academia of this, and, and to what extent is it just sort of passively accepted as, this, as the way the system functions? Well, I could provide uh, some examples that uh, that might be anecdotal. Uh, I bring this up sometimes with uh, with with colleagues uh, with regard to the funding for uh, so-called independent uh, alternative progressive left media. Uh, how much of their funding, in fact, I've written about this. How much of their funding comes from uh, from foundations? And uh, what is the relationship between that funding and the fact that they will not address uh, things such as uh, 9-11 in a vigorous way? They will not address uh, things such as uh, geoengineering or uh, RF. Uh, these are, as far as I'm concerned, very real kind of overt uh, uh, forms of censorship because uh, these these. These media we rely on, for many people rely on, certainly much of the educated intellectual class in the country, uh, do rely on these media for, uh, for information. And if they're not providing, if they're not doing that investigative journalism, uh, there are very few others out there that actually will. So Agreed. Certainly- All right, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Starts with you and me. It starts with you and me. We all 
All right, friends, welcome back. Once again tonight, we are talking to Dr. James F. Tracy. Once again, he's at memoryholeblog.com, so I hope you'll go check that out. Of course, I will put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode at corbettreport.com in case you do miss that uh, that website. Once again, memoryholeblog.com, all one word. And tonight we're talking about academics, academia, and the function that uh, that the acad- academia can play in a society in terms of social critique, etc. And I I hate to go back to it once again, but we have been talking about Noam Chomsky, and it, once again his name does come up because he has figured so prominently in this for so many decades. And of course he wrote the uh, the famous uh, essay, The Responsibility of Intellectuals, back in February 1967, which raised really the idea that uh, that intellectuals are in a way responsible for what's happening at that time in the Vietnam War and which made an argument that those who are in a position to to do so must speak out as strongly as possible rather than uh, become active actively complicit in in what's happening there and it was a very uh, polarizing essay at the time but has really staked a lot of claims in terms of what academics are responsible for so so do you think i mean what what position do you think that academics and intellectuals hold, broadly speaking, in in the current matrix when we start taking a look at our current paradigm of the war on terror, the the Department of Homeland Security, and all of the things that are being waged in the name of this this particular uh, moment in time? How much of that do you think can be pinned on that same responsibility of intellectuals that Chomsky identified in 1967? Well, I think that's a very important essay, but it's much more important now uh, than it was uh, in uh, in the late 1960s, uh, because now we are in this uh, allegedly uh, this alleged war without end, uh, the uh, the war on terror, uh, and uh, yet it seems as if really in in many cases there are fewer. Uh, voices of, of dissent, particularly in the uh, coming out of the out of the academy, uh, where I think they uh, they do for uh, many have a certain degree of credibility, given the fact that they have credentials and so on and so forth, and they're supposed to be learned. Uh, but uh, you see, uh, as far as I'm concerned, less of that. I think that that is something that has been anticipated by the establishment. I think that's why we have Barack Obama as president for another four years and had him for the previous four years. Uh, uh, one could argue that uh, the election of Mitt Romney may have actually uh, may have electrified uh, the left that are uh, traditionally against uh, war and so forth. Uh, Romney might have gotten away with quite a bit less than uh, Obama will over the next uh, the next four years, uh, because you do have that that activist element of the uh, of the left that are. That I think are, um, I think they have it right in terms of things such as war. I, I'm, uh, I, I tend to differ in, in other sorts of areas, but uh, with regard to the anti-war stance, uh, I think that that uh, that's tremendously important. And, and many uh, in the um, academy, uh, their politics are uh, left of center, and uh, and so you would think that they would actually be standing up. And I think that. The first thing that one has to do in order to address the war on terror is to address 9-11, because that's where it all began. And if one is afraid of going there because they're going to be called names, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a big step, uh, but uh, if they're afraid of going there, then they're not really able to address the present historical moment. 
they're going to be addressing it really without any sort of uh, uh, w- without the foundation that is necessary to concretely address it. Uh, and uh, and it begins in many ways with that event. One could argue that it began in '93 with the World Trade Center bombing. At that time, it began and it was exacerbated, exacerbated in '95 with the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, there's no doubt about that with regard to anti-terror legislation and what have you. But really, uh, overall, it came to uh, came to a head uh, with uh, with 9/11. So that's something that really has to be addressed. That is not addressed to the extent that it should be. And I think that that is. You know, in the nineteen, the, the late 1950s and early to mid-1960s, there were things such as the civil rights movement and uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement, you know, out of, out of where that, uh, that uh, essay by Chomsky came, out of that era. And it was not necessarily popular to stand up and to take a stance with regard to U.S. foreign policy or with regard to the civil rights of African Americans. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's not the same as the case, I think, today with regard to uh, matters such as such as 9-11 or Barack Obama's foreign policy. People are afraid of, of being called, uh, you know, being called a racist or conspiracy theorist. But uh, if one is principled, if one has good information, then uh, they should be able to stand up and uh, and make it a point to uh, to be heard uh, in the uh, in the public realm, whether it's a show uh uh, by James Corbett or, uh, you know, elsewhere. It's, it's actually, it's really interesting for me as s- someone in my generation who has grown up seeing the student protest movements and the, the active camp, the campus activism that was going on in the 1960s and early 1970s against the Vietnam War and other, other such movements that were taking place at that time and seeing the, the, the academy being really the, the heart of that societal conversation. And to have grown up in my own generation where the idea of that type of radical student activism happening in any sort of form against the, the ongoing war on terror is almost unthinkable. And it's, it's just such a, uh, such a broad discrepancy. It's really, uh, it's so hard to, to, to see that, to witness that, being someone who is so, so staunchly anti-war to admit that basically there's no possibility of that type of movement arising at this moment in time, um, just given the, the general societal situation we're in. How do you think society has been brought so far to, to the other side of the stance where it's, it's literally almost difficult to imagine that, that same type of activism occurring in this day and age? I think that at least part of it has to do uh, with uh, the fact that um, corporations or the corporate government nexus, if you will, uh, they have uh, made it very difficult uh, for uh, young people to uh, to obtain uh, a higher education. So they have to work their way through college, or they're they're told they have to go through college, uh, and um, and so they rack up a tremendous amounts of uh, of debt. There's less funding. College is more uh, is more expensive, and so they are working two or three jobs to make ends meet. Uh, at least that's the case at uh, here where I teach. We have a primarily uh, a working class, uh, you know. Student Student uh, population, and uh, they generally have to work their way through school. So, you know, the idea of going out and getting involved with with any sorts of uh, uh, social protest or what have you—that's uh, uh, the furthest thing from from their mind, and uh, that's unfortunate. But I think that 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 is is part of it. Although, uh, you know, that really does not answer uh, why there isn't protest, for example, in the Ivy League universities where uh, they don't have to worry about uh, those sorts of realities. Uh, so maybe that is, you know, as, as good of a uh, 
uh, as good of a summation as I as I would like. But that's certainly the case. That's what I see. Uh, what I see here. Um, but um, it, it's something that is is fairly complex. It also, I think, has to a certain degree to do with uh, you know with uh, with the culture, uh, with the uh, with 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 mass media uh, to uh, to a significant degree, uh, to the uh, dumbing down of uh, of of the population uh, in terms of their education. Uh, I don't think that uh, students today really think of themselves as being citizens. They uh, seldom have a uh, civics class or the equivalent in uh, grade or high school. I used to have a, a in the public opinion class. I begin with an informal public opinion poll with ten or twelve questions, and one of those questions is uh, name at least one of your U.S. senators and name your uh, your representative to the uh, to the to the U.S. House, and uh, almost no students can get that. And uh, that's uh, really quite concerning. These are students who are in their late uh, teens, early twenties, and uh, they're also students who, you know, who uh, in many cases want to be journalists. Uh, so maybe they're thinking of sports journalism or fashion journalism, but uh, they have no real concern with politics. And I think that's really the most important thing when it comes to uh, when it comes to journalism. So there are a number of factors. I think educational, cultural, uh, certainly economic. Again, uh, there's less wherewithal to be able to uh, partake in these sorts of things. And one of the things that I find so unfortunate with regard to young people uh, is that by the time they get done, uh, you know, with their education, they might be six figures in debt. Uh, it might not be quite that much at a state university like this, but certainly if they're going to a fancier school, uh, you know, in the Northeast or what have you, uh, they, they may be heavily in debt, uh, and therefore they've, uh, they've, they've mortgaged their time. They've got to go out and work. They can't go to, uh, go somewhere and, and get an internship, say it's, uh, you know, at a, uh, uh, <clears throat> elected official's office, or they cannot go around and tour the world for a year or two, maybe go to Japan and, and uh, <laughs> teach English. I think that's where you, uh, what you did after school. And so uh, those sorts of possibilities are short-circuited, and that's tremendously un- unfortunate. And uh, so a lot of the people who are educated who do go through school and so forth, again, they really have to go and get those nine-to-five jobs, start making those loan payments, and uh, and, uh, and, and, and face reality in that sort of way instead of maybe uh, partaking in, pursuing a career uh, in public service, uh, pursuing a career for a nonprofit, or pursuing, pursuing a career maybe with their own alternative media outlet. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, some of my students w- would really like to do that, uh, and uh, they're, I feel that they're probably unable to. Well, this is turning into a, a rather bleak conversation, and I think a warranted a bleak conversation because we are living in bleak times in many ways. But I wouldn't want to leave people with the uh, uh, with the impression that it is all hopeless and that it is all uh, quite so so dire. So, so perhaps we can concentrate on some of the bright spots in in academia at this point. Um, for example, we mentioned at the beginning of tonight's show, Project Censored, which is obviously uh, an excellent and really important um, thing to have uh, coming out of uh, out of the academy, but any other points, any other places, any other institutions or any other academics that you'd like to point people towards as people who are making an active difference and who are not afraid to, to stand up against the status quo? You mean uh, academic figures uh, specifically? Sure. Or, or institutions in general. Well, I think that alongside uh, Project Censored, I think that... Uh, the uh, global research website is uh, tremendously important. I know that you're involved with that, James. 
And uh, I think that uh, uh, Michelle Shazadovsky is, uh, he's retired from academe, but uh, he's probably more active than most, <laughs> than most academics. Uh, and uh, he is, uh, I think, an uh, ideal of a, of a public intellectual, uh, someone who uh, really believes that it is, uh, it's important uh, to stay involved, uh, that it's a public service, and that uh, his position really uh, behooves him of, uh, of service in, in that regard. So that's, uh, that's one individual I would uh, be able to point to sort of off of the top of, uh, top of my head. I, I think that there are a number of, um, number of academics who, who also do consider themselves uh, activists and what have you in terms of, uh, in terms of, of commentary and the like that, uh, that, uh, that I know and I'm familiar with. Uh, the folks at Project Censored, for example, I think one of the, one of the reasons that uh, I hold them in such high regard is that they have uh, they've not retreated in terms of, uh, of 9-11. Uh, and uh, they've lost uh, uh, individuals who have been involved in their on their editorial board or board of advisors as a result of that, uh, and uh, that's unfortunate. But they did they they have stood their ground, and uh, that is a is a forum whereby uh, uh, things involving nine uh, eleven uh, uh, can be included, and scholars, intellectuals that uh, do address that topic are not shunned. And I don't know if that's the case in uh, in many academic communities or uh, sub communities, if you will. Uh, you know, there um, uh, there are experiences I've had where uh, I don't communicate with uh, some people anymore because of some of the stances I've taken, and that's fine. Uh, you know, we we have to be uh, our own uh, our own individuals. Uh, so, um, you know, th- those are two uh, sites I could think of. You know, I think that there are a lot of people who are who are doing fantastic work, who are role models. Uh, James, I've played your videos in uh, in my classes. I think that there are uh, fantastic figures uh, such as uh, Tony Cartolucci and uh, Niall Bowie and uh, Paul Joseph Watson, for example, at uh, Infowars. And these, these people are uh, doing investigative journalism and, and work on geopolitics and on civil liberties concerns that just are not addressed uh, anywhere else. Uh, and uh, if we didn't have them, think of how, how much less informed we would be. And I think that also goes with, uh, with your work, James. Well, I am honored by that assessment, and uh, to be in the likes of such company is is truly an honor in, in and of itself. Uh, let me throw out a couple of my own ideas on the table. There's also, of course, the uh, the Journal of 9-11 Studies, which publishes uh, works by academics um, uh, related to 9-11, and in fact, they just recently published a new article about uh, the seismic readings of uh, the, the collapse of the Three Towers, or supposedly what was the collapse of the Three Towers, and uh, a very interesting studies being published there all the time. Also, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Peter Dale Scott and the excellent work that he's done examining some of the deeper social institutions that most academics stay away from. But then again, it's a case of a poet, a uh, literature professor who is, uh, has done some of the best works on geopolitics and, and deep politics and parapolitics that I think has been done in academia in recent decades, which is, again, something of an indictment against the people who are actually supposed to be studying this. This actual 
field. Yeah, we've got Peter Dale Scott. I think of Alfred McCoy as well, at, uh, who's I believe at University of uh, Wisconsin Madison. Uh, but you're right. Uh, in, in there are really few and far between, and that's unfortunate because uh, you know think of all the uh, all the faculty that uh, we have in the in the United States, just in in that area in the uh, in the humanities that could be actually addressing these uh, these important concerns. And uh, Peter Dale Scott is. Uh, you know he's he's getting up there in years, and uh, yet uh, he's still uh, producing work, uh, producing uh, you know very good and, and and very important work, and uh, he's not shied away from uh, from these uh, these issues. Absolutely, if I if I'm not mistaken, I believe he's up in his seventies now, but he's still doing interviews and still writing uh, pro- pro- profusely on on these types of issues, as well as doing his own academic work, which is uh, uh, certainly admirable. I wish I had half the energy by the time I get to that age. But uh, (laughs) he has a background as well, I think, because he was a Canadian diplomat prior to going into into academe. So I think that uh, he does have that uh, he does have that political background uh, anyway. And uh, I heard an interview with him. He was also uh, at school. Uh, at uh, McAllister or McGill with uh, Brzezinski. Uh, I don't know if you uh, if you came across that or not, but I think I, think I have heard that before. But uh, observation that he had because he said that he was uh, he was something of a fanatic then as well, even in the seminars when uh, they'd kind of be across the table from each other. <laughs> I can only imagine. I can only shudder at what it would be like to take a class with Zbigniew. Well, interesting. All right. Well, of course, we should, uh, of course, introduce people to your work and the work that you're doing at Memory Hole Blog, because, of course, that is, I think, one of the, the shining examples of someone who's using uh, that, that platform to actually make a difference. But we're coming up against our final break, so let's just take a short breather. We'll be back to wrap things up with James F. Tracy and go over some of the latest information that's been posted to MemoryHoleBlog.com right after these messages. One day in Manhattan all right, when, welcome back to the program, ladies and gentlemen. We are here in the final minutes of Corbett Report Radio. Once again, we've been talking to Dr. James F. Tracy of MemoryHoleBlog.com, and we've been talking a lot about academia in general and some of the work that people are doing, but we haven't really talked a lot about the work that you're doing at Memory Hole Blog. So perhaps we should just uh, go over some of the latest posts that you've made to the website and some of the issues that you're into, including, of course, geoengineering, also JFK and the Lost Prospects for Peace, touching on the report from Iron Mountain, which is a contentious uh, document in and of itself, um, when propaganda masquerades as news and political extremism in the technocratic order, some fascinating stuff that's going on there. Why don't you just tell people a little bit about what you've been working on lately? Well, uh, my latest uh, essay posted uh, last week, uh, Political Extremism in the Technocratic Order, uh, it um, really more or less uh, concerns itself with um, the um, the ways in which uh, political discourse, uh, public discourse is... Uh, is 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 constructed and kind of circulated uh, in in our world today, uh, and um, you know some of the ways that uh, that it's also you know, it's it, it's it's uh, attempted to be kind of reshaped, uh, redirected, uh, and the like. And um, I uh, also last month I had uh, uh, posted uh, let's see um, a piece on uh, geoengineering. And uh, not only in part on geoengineering, but really my primary concern with regard to that piece was the fact that um, when we we talk about 
uh, you know, extreme weather and so forth. Uh, weather modification and geoengineering are not in the equation, you know, in the uh, in, in the major uh, the the mass media. Uh, and uh, so it's it's been a, a source of frustration for me uh, because this is another term that is uh, you know frequently identified with uh, conspiracy, conspiracy theory, you know chemtrails, and yet as far as I'm concerned, uh, the case is closed. Uh, these uh, these programs are are going on, and they they are uh, a significant significant factor, if not a you know a foremost factor. Uh, certainly, much much more so than uh, you know CO two, which is a minuscule gas in our in our uh, in our atmosphere. Uh, and the uh, the JFK and the um, uh, the report from Iron Mountain uh, essay uh, came out later last last month. I try to uh, put something up every other week or so, particularly when I'm teaching. I uh, it might be every week when I'm when I'm not teaching, and I have a little bit more uh, more time to devote uh, to these things. Uh, some of these things have, have come out of uh, uh, coursework as well. I, I teach a class now called Culture of Conspiracy, and uh, it really kind of came out of the journalism criticism classes uh, where, uh, you know, some of the things like, you know, we, we teach, for example, Project Censored, and some of the stories like in the top 25, people just can't believe they took place really in part because they're just unplugged from even mainstream media, uh, and if they're plugged into mainstream media, they don't they don't see it. Uh, so some of these things just seem so outrageous, uh, and yet uh, they are real. They are documented, and I think that's also the case with regard to some of the you know the major political conspiracies in our time, the 1960s assassinations, uh, you know matters such as uh, such as uh, 9/11, uh, Oklahoma City. So these are primarily political conspiracies that we look at and the ways in which they have uh, been been misinterpreted or uh, not covered at all uh, by, um, you know, by, by formal uh, history, uh, the discipline of history itself, uh, and, uh, and journalism, which, of course, is the first uh, blueprint of history. Well, Dr. Tracy, where were you when I was a student? I, what I would have done for a class like that. Oh, well, at any rate, I'm glad that students out there are being exposed to this and that you are, of course, keeping the, the public in the loop with your blog. So once again, I hope people will go to memoryholeblog.com for more information about uh, some of these extremely important issues. And it's good to see, once again, this being engaged with uh, via an academic. Wow, imagine that, someone actually speaking up for truth. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we are absolutely fresh out of time, but Dr. Tracy, thank you again for your time tonight. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you for all you do, James. I really appreciate your website. Excellent. All right, we'll leave it there, and but we'll be back 23 hours from now, so thank you for listening and take care.